Introduction to mindfulness. I think it's so familiar to you. <laughs> but before I talk about it, I'd like to tell you that uh, I'm filled with uh, a lot of gratitudes for your being here to practice this time of the year. It brings sweet memories. When I, I came to the United States in 1999 to sit right there, where there's a big pile of cushions, <laughs> that was me. I piled one cushion after the other cushion to overcome pain, but it didn't work. <laughs> But it's very funny that the, the yogi was sitting next to me. He was sitting only on one cushion. <laughs> so I say, how, how this person is doing it? So when I remembered that time when I had to go through a lot of physical pain there, so this retreat is so special to me. <laughs> it's close to my heart. I teach in many places, in New Zealand, Australia, different places, but teaching at IMS is so special to me, because even in 2000, I was on staff here. I was the only African here, person of color, and I was in the front office, and I was not seeing other people. I was the only one. So I was a retreat coordinator. I would come here in 2000. Rebecca still remember me before I became a monk. Young adults, you know. Yes, so it was a different experience, actually, back then, 2000. It's amazing. Over 20 years, 22 years, IMS has changed a lot. So I'm very grateful to IMS. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, maybe gratitude in my talk. But that's a preamble to my talk anyway. So let me talk about right mindfulness. Actually, this is a very common word, mindfulness. In Uganda, they use it a lot. Be mindful of the law. But when it comes to the word practice mindfulness, uh, most people in my country get confused. And when you talk about mindfulness meditation, they even get confused. Yes, so it's common in our language, daily language, and yet when we say mindfulness meditation or right mindfulness, people seem not to know what we are talking about in my country. I remember going there to do walking meditation, and I was doing walking meditation, mindfulness of walking. And everybody was asking me, have you lost anything? Then I, I changed the route. <laughs> Let me go hide there and walk. But still somebody will see what are you, what are you doing. <laughs> I say I'm doing walking meditation, mindfulness of walking. Oh, I thought we were looking for something. <laughs> and later on, one time, I, actually this time I was in California where I became a monk in 2021, 2022. And I, found, I, I went out of the center. Tatagata Meditation Center, that's where I ordained in California. Anyone from California? Uh, San Jose. That's where I ordained in 2021. So I've been a monk for 20 years, uh, 2022 high ordination. So I ventured to go outside before ordination, and I found some African uh, people there from Ethiopia. 
Um, then they asked me what I doing. I told them I'm doing meditation. They say, oh, medication. I said, no, I'm meditating. They thought, actually, three times I kept on repeating it. <laughs> medication. I said, no, meditation. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> so these words are very common, but, uh, and we take them for granted. But uh, they have deeper meaning, actually. So mindfulness uh, from, um, of course, Buddhist psychology uh, and ancient commentaries, the way they define any term, it's interesting. They always define it in four areas. One is in terms of its characteristics, in terms of its function, in terms of its manifestation, in terms of its proximity cause. And out of the four, if you don't get it, <laughs> I think you then have to resort somewhere. But uh, really, that's how they define things, and I really appreciate that. I remember uh, when I was in Burma, I think with Rebecca also, <laughs> our coming connection, studying Buddhist psychology. <laughs> it has, it's very detailed, you know. So if you want to find any definition, especially in mind states in Buddhism, you go to that uh, section, which is called Abhidhamma, Buddhist psychology. It's very systematic. And even when it comes to the word mindfulness, uh, you find a definition there. But of course, scientists and meditators, they always say that it's very difficult to define the word mindfulness, but there you find a definition in terms of those four areas. Of course, the word Pali, the Pali word is sati, or smruti in Sanskrit. Even in India, they still use that word. You go to New Delhi, you find a, a park, which is called smruti, means remembrance. So it's still in vogue. This, time is, this term mindfulness, or remembrance, is still in modern day India. They are using it. Of course, uh, it comes from the verb sarati, means uh, to remember, also to recollect. That's its traditional meaning. But it seems that the Buddha used the, this word in a very special way. Uh, he gave it a psychological bent to mean paying attention in what's going on in the present moment. So then from Buddhist psychology, the characteristics of mindfulness is not wobbling. In other words, not floating away from the object. So if, let's say, the object of your meditation is, is the breath, so it means that mindfulness is not uh, floating away from that object, is with it, another together, like this. This kind of concurrence uh, with the observing mind and object. And the side of Pandit, I studied with him actually in Burma, and the forest refugee, and uh, California. I listened to his uh, definition of mindfulness. He was talking about observing power. And for me, that's really uh, connected uh, very well with me, my practice, to observe something, observing power. So here we're talking about non-floating and... Uh, then it talks about its, its manifestation, its function as absence of confusion or non-forgetfulness. So, of course, that's really the opposite of mindfulness is forgetfulness. I don't know about you, but for me, <laughs> I get moments of forgetfulness, especially in my practice. I remember when I was here on a three-month retreat in 1999. There was sitting meditation after that, walking meditation. But I've, I found out there was some tea, herbal tea, a lot, assortments of teas, jasmine tea, what? You name it, and we didn't have it In Uganda, we, we have one kind of tea, Ugandan tea. That's it. 
so here I found different names of tea, peppermint, this, I mean. In Uganda, you can take, uh, uh, have what called lemongrass, peppermint, as a plant. You can get the leaves. But here it was already made nicely in tea bags. Not much work, you know. So for me, immediately after sitting, I would just go there to get a cup of tea. And I found a big line. And I had to line up. <laughs> so it took me another 10 minutes, 15 minutes lining up to make a good cup of tea. So by the time I finished the cup of tea, walking meditation is done. <laughs> then I have to come back to the, my seat. I'm telling you I was forgetful. I forgot totally, completely about walking meditation. And I didn't know so much about the instruction of being mindfulness of taking a cup of tea. But later on, I figured that out. I, I figured it. You can actually be mindful of one taking a cup of tea. But for me, those days, I was just taking tea. Forgetful, you know. And the trade-off was a lot of pain. I went to my teacher, Joseph. <laughs> I have a lot of pain. <laughs> he said, do you do walking meditation? I said, no, I take a cup of tea. (laughs) Actually, later on, I found out that this practice was meant to balance sitting meditation, walking meditation, even standing meditation, as we are going to see. We have to really be mindful of everything. So that can, I can relate to that function. And non-forgetfulness. Then manifestation. Mindfulness, the way it manifests to a meditator is uh, as the state of confronting an objective field. Also, they talk about being a guardian of the mind. It guards the mind, yes, from mental defilements. When you practice mindfulness, actually it's very interesting to see in your experience that you cut off so many mental defilements, whether it's fear, anger, different mind states that are very difficult. So it guards the mind. So also that one, I can relate to that. Whenever I practice mindfulness, when there's a stress and I take a deep breath, and then I feel less stressed. And I see, hey, that mindfulness works. It's guiding my mind. And those aha moments really actually motivates us to continue the practice. So I think it's very interesting to really watch in your practice when you feel you're kind of uh, attacked by either hindrances Somebody will talk about hindrances, and you are able to be mindful of those hindrances, and then they subside. In that case, the mind mindfulness is manifesting as a guardian, guarding your mind, protecting protecting your mind from uh, uh, mental defilements. When it, comes to, when it comes to protecting one's mind, I remember practicing a Saido Pandita in 2003 at the Forest Refuge. And uh, he asked, uh, his assistant asked me, what's your name? I said, Buddha Rakita. Say, what does it mean? I said, protected by the Buddha. But he said, no, you should protect... Uh, this your practice like this you have to protect the three C's that's what he advised me protect the three C's one C is continuity of mindfulness so if you want to really benefit from this practice you need what we call continuity of mindfulness from sitting 
<laughs> those who practice in the Mahas tradition, you know what I talk about. F- there, from sitting and bowing down and standing, walking, every time you have to be mindful. Every time. So there's continuity of mindfulness. If you want to gain this protection of the mind, this should be continuity of mindfulness. So you, you protect mindfulness, and mindfulness will protect you. So there's that continuity of mindfulness. And he talked about concurrence, which means that the observing mind and the object you're observing, it has to, con- to come together uh, at the same time, not just missing it. And then con- the other C was concentration. Of course, continuity of mindfulness leads to concentration. So that's what he told me, that I should protect, protect the three Cs. And I, I found out that was very helpful because uh, it was really a very intensive practice. I think it was one month. And uh, I saw how mindfulness was guarding, serving as a guardian, actually, when there was continuity of mindfulness, concurrence, and then con- concentration. The fourth definition here is proximity, proximate cause. This non-producing cause is more of a supporting cause. What supports mindfulness is a strong perception or the full foundation of mindfulness. The full foundation of mindfulness, again, the least. It is said that if there's no God in Buddhism, there are lists. Please, be patient with this list. Actually, if I'm to see Buddha again, the Buddha would really thank him very much. Because I need lists. <laughs> this came from a tradition where people were just remembering things. There was no writing, and they committed them to memory. So it's easy to chant this teaching, you know, if it has lists. Because just remember four of these, two of these, one of these, eight of these. <laughs> Do we have 15? <laughs> Oh, we have 37 factors of enlightenment. So these are four. I'm going to spell them for you. Mindfulness of the body. Mindfulness of feelings. Mindfulness of mind states. And mindfulness of dhammas with a small d. It means categories of dhammas. Because the word mind, mental objects is, is very complicated. And, but you take it to be mindfulness of various categories of Dharma. That's what we, I'm going to really outline for you. And uh, most of our practice here is going to draw a lot from those for foundational mindfulness. Before we dive into this four, always I question myself, especially with the teaching of the Buddha, where does this teaching fit in a larger picture of the Buddha's teaching? For me, this is very, very important. Whatever teaching, whether it's faith, uh, whether it's effort, I always want to track it down. Where does it fit into the larger picture? And that one always brings some questions. What's mindfulness? When should we practice mindfulness? Why do we practice mindfulness? And how to practice it? So once I can answer those questions, then I I know that I'm somewhere. (laughs) So what's the larger picture of the Buddha's teaching? It starts with a vision. What's the vision? And even you can ask yourself, why are you here? You can ask yourself, why are you here? (laughs) Do you miss a cruise boat and ended up here? (laughs) Or you missed uh, African safari, you know? Some people might miss uh, African safari, and it was fully booked, and they show up here. Where I trained at Bavana Society in West Virginia for eight years, uh, 
my job was a retreat coordinator. And I know people have different motivations where they come here. Really, when you look at a bigger picture while you're here, you are really here to, I don't know about you, but I don't want to assign your motivation while you're here, but I want to assume that you're here to attain happiness and peace and liberation, whether it's total liberation or partial, part-time, or, I don't know. <laughs> Somewhere around that. Am I right? <laughs> I'm not far from the truth. Yes. So then we have to look at that was the vision of the Buddha. So just like in a business world, they have a vision. Uh, organization have a vision. The Buddha also had a vision to attain final liberation. And everything just served that main vision. So we are here to attain freedom, ultimate freedom. That's why you are here. So then uh, from his vision, Buddha's vision, then we come to the mission. The Buddha also had a mission statement, just like universities, organization. So he also organized his teaching with a mission statement. So there are four of them. One of them is to understand suffering. To understand suffering. The second one is to abandon the cause of suffering. The third one is to realize peace, nibbana, ultimate happiness, freedom. And then the fourth State, mission statement is to develop or cultivate the path that leads to the end of suffering. And that's the noble eightfold path. Right understanding, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So that's where mindfulness comes in, in the fourth first mission statement to cultivate mindfulness it's part of the noble eightfold path and once we cultivate right mindfulness we understand suffering once we understand suffering we abandon the cause of suffering once we abandon the cause of suffering then we realize peace ultimate peace so that's the bigger picture and we need to fit to align ourselves, our practice, in the vision and the mission of the Buddha. Then we can go to the, the next thing. You know, <laughs> you are now well aligned. So now we go to, uh, why do we bother? Maybe you don't ask this question, but in our center in Uganda, we have a monastery there. We have so many kids there. They go to school, preschool, primary school. Sometimes I teach them for almost two months, and one raised the hand. Raised the hand. Why are we here? I mean, one month, two months, these kids have been here meditating, and they ask me, "Why are we meditating?" It's very interesting. <laughs> But I thought it's only in Uganda, but I was teaching somewhere, and still an adult asked me, why do we meditate, really? So these are very interesting questions. And, uh, and the good news is that the Buddha answered them. <laughs> 2,600 years ago, Buddha had the answers to this question. I want now to quote directly from the Buddha in this discourse, which is called Mahasatipatana Sutta, uh, also Satipatthana Sutta, which is really a masterpiece of our practice, meditation practice. I happened to be in India in 2004, three, and I went to this place. It's in New Delhi, no, Old Delhi, where the Buddha taught this discourse. Really, you can go there. It's still there. Before, you, you can even visit it, actually, before it, 
it won't disappear, I think. It has stayed for such a long time. Exact spot where the Buddha taught the four foundational mindfulness is in old Delhi. You can see it. It's like kind of a stones and then a small shelter there. And I sat there and practiced this discourse. So it's live. You can now go to... When I was there, I really could go to the time of the Buddha really feeling that I'm, the Buddha was teaching me and I was sitting there meditating on this so foundation of mindfulness. And in this discourse, the Buddha talks about this the only way. Or most people say it's a direct way to Nibbana. For the purification of being, that's why you are doing this practice. Purification of beings means purification of minds, actually. Uh, beings means sata, which is, means craving, actually. So purification of craving, purification of minds. That's the first reason why you're here. Have you heard about buy one and get one for free? <laughs> <laughs> so now here you have to get five, uh, four for free. Four. <laughs> one time I was... Actually, most this is mostly in USA. You go to Walmart, buy one, you get one for free. One time I was in London and uh, I was passing near a um, shop, what's it called, market, supermarket. And I saw, buy one, you get three for free. But here Buddha was talking about four for free. Hmm? Purify the mind from mental defilements, that means greed, hatred, delusion, and all psychic irritants. Once you do that, the rest can come along. You don't ask. You don't have to ask for them. <laughs> yes, you do that, and that's what you are doing here. Actually, all our time here, that's our purpose hmm? uh, to purify our minds. Mindfulness is one of them, but there will be other practices that will support mindfulness, including loving kindness. Even when you practice loving kindness, compassion, equanimity, the purpose is to purify the mind from anger, from this. So we'll talk more of, of, about that. So you get, once you do that, then the second one is very clear for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation. For the disappearance of pain and grief. For reaching the noble path. These are various levels of enlightenment. And for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four foundation of mindfulness. So you can see the high goal. The higher goal is to attain Nibbana. Even you, if you feel you are here just to reduce a little pain, it's, which is okay, it's a bonus. Hmm? Don't undermine those bonus. And actually this really uh, gives you some motivation that what's possible, really, yeah, if you really overcome pain. But it seems that when you come and meditate, pain seems to increase. Is that your experience? It was my experience. I don't know about you. <laughs> For me, it took me a while to figure it out. Uh, when I had a lot of pain, it was not working. I was not trusting the, the instruction. I was getting more pain. But one time I found out another way to navigate around pain was to resolve it into different elements. Whenever I felt pain, I would just resolve it. Physical pain. I'm talking about physical pain. I would just be mindful. Oh, pressure, tightness, hardness, throbbing. So I was just isolating that big ghost in my knee. And I would just take, just knowing all its portion, its heat. It's pressure. It's throbbing. It's this. Ah, it was workable, you know. Yes. So there's a way. In case still you feel that you're getting more pain, talk to your teacher. <laughs> yes. But it seems that when you are beginning to practice, uh, more pain and more pain and say no. But Bante said that for disappearing, disappearing of pain and grief, the pain is not going. But also, there's also some kind of instruction 
I think it's Joseph who talks about it. Uh, most people, when they have this kind of difficulties in their life, in their meditation, they incline their mind and meditating in order to pain to go. And that keeps it, I mean, there, actually. Because you're inclining your mind on the goal and not on the process. Right? So, in other words, you have a lot of expectations too when you're meditating. Expectations also become an obstacle. You can substitute your expectations with aspirations and inspirations. Uh, those who have been here, I think, for quite a while, when you go up there, there's a kind of a, a, sign, a, a, a painting on a wall. On this path, there's nothing to expect. For me, that's why I had my interview. <laughs> I was going to see Joseph <laughs> for my interview in 2000. And whenever I read this, one, oh, I say, wow, I can drop all my expectations. But it doesn't mean you should have zero. Uh, though expectation is a form of subtle desire, you should actually substitute your expectations with aspirations, which is the focus of the process. Aspiration focuses on the process, while uh, expectation really kind of grab to the goal. This is my goal. This is what I expect. But with inspiration and aspiration, you are with the process, which is okay. Let me do the hard work, let me do, and this, let me practice right efforts, let me do this, continue to mindfulness. So we, you are with the process, with aspiration, and then you see how it goes. So that's the, that's the purpose, fivefold purposes uh, of meditation. Now I will spell out, of course, you know when to meditate. It's every time. <laughs> All the time, except when you're fast asleep. I had a huge frustration when I just started practicing meditation. Uh, I was in San Jose, and uh, in my teacher, of course, this is Panditarama uh, style, my style. And uh, I was the only yogi there, uh, training to be a monk. And uh, my teacher gave me instructions. You should practice sitting meditation and walking meditation. And, uh, of course, the uh, eating. Uh, when you eat, when you brush your teeth. But during my training for months and months, there was no work period. Like here... Have they removed yogi job? <laughs> they have removed it? <laughs> yeah, okay. So here you have yogi job. I didn't have a yogi job there. So my practice was sitting, walking, and eating no yogi job. So at one point, I saw plants dry, no water. I say, let me go to my teacher and ask, can I water the plants? I went there and said, no, 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 you should practice meditation. Don't worry about watering the plants. There will be other people who take care of that. Your your job is to meditate, sitting, walking. So for the first year, I really actually uh, knew that that's my job description. Sitting, walking, sitting, walking. (laughs) I'm telling you. I had to leave that monastery and went to another kind of practice. I don't know if you know Bhante Gunaratana. I've been here in 2000, and he came here to teach here. He invited me to go to West Virginia. Uh, and I was still a layman. Uh, I said, where is this place? And when I became a monk, I thought of my invitation. <laughs> And then I shifted from California to West Virginia, very cold also, uh, of a tropical monk like me. <laughs> but I got some training. I spent a year almost here at IMS, staying there as staff. A little training. But it was very cold in West Virginia. And then I met Bante Gunaratana, 
uh, who wrote Mindfulness in Plain English, I say, yes, my teacher was also very good. Saido Silananda, then he say, go to Bante Gunaratana, he's also a very good teacher. So he had a different style of meditation. When I arrived there in the morning, he asked me, do you have a yogi job? I said, what? I didn't know, I didn't understand what he was talking about. He said, you need to get a job. And uh, then he, he told me to contact one guy called Bart. Then they gave me a job. So once I got that job, I saw it as something different from my practice. So I didn't see that yogi job as part of my practice. So what I did is to do it very fast and go to the seat. And I was so surprised in the meditation center. Uh, during that time, we have the meditation is like from a morning, this morning meditation and evening meditation. In between, you are supposed to integrate your mindfulness throughout your daily activities. But I didn't know that that is training. My training in California was just focused on sitting, walking, and no yogi job. There, it's actually yogi job is part of the practice, but I didn't know. So I did it very, very fast. I would just go vacuum cleaning like this very, very fast, and then after that, done. I go to meditate. But I was so stressed when I reached my cushion. And later on, I contacted him and said, you know, mindfulness, you should really kind of spread it out in whatever you're doing. And he told me, what are you going to do? What you can't do while vacuum cleaning? What are you going to do on a cushion? What you can't do when you're vacuum cleaning? I said, there is nothing. (laughs) I can do mindfulness when I'm vacuum cleaning. Then the next day, I said, when I was vacuum cleaning, I would just do like this mindfulness of moving on my hand, mindfulness of moving like this. So like this, slowly. I even I took my time, and I, I enjoyed it, actually. For the first time, I really enjoyed vacuum cleaning. <laughs> Talk about people getting in Latin when they're washing dishes and all these things. I know it's possible, <laughs> but I didn't get in Latin. <laughs> I got lighter. <laughs> I lightened my job, in other words. Like this, like this, like this. I'm telling you, when I went back to the meditation cushion, because I had continued on mindfulness, it was amazing. I just settled into my practice. You see? So this is very, very important that when, with the question, when should we, when should we practice mindfulness, is all the time except when we are fast asleep. Mm-hmm. Except when we are fast asleep. You can do it if you want when you are asleep, but at least there's an exception. Uh, the instruction we have is mindfulness of silence, mindfulness of talking, mindfulness when you are falling asleep. And the challenge is to know, to find out which, which when you go to sleep, whether it's on in-breath or out-breath, it's up to you. Take up that challenge. <laughs> Going to sleep. Yes, I slept on in-breath. You can report that on to your teacher. <laughs> and I went, that, that would be super mindfulness, super-duper mindfulness. <laughs> so, but the message is very clear. Hmm? We should be mindful all the time. And I learned that lesson. My mindfulness got so better when I was integrating mindfulness in their, in their activities. But then I pushed it from uh, vacuum cleaning. I went to brush my teeth. I broke the toothbrush. <laughs> Not good idea, Bante. <laughs> I was over-efforting. I said, let me actually do mindfulness of brushing my teeth. Like this, I was really, really putting a lot of effort. I say, relax, come on, relax, you know. Especially like when I'm late uh, for morning sittings, and I was doing it very, very fast so that I don't get late, you know. It's not a good idea to go in a meditation hall 
when all the monks have sat there, you know. So, with my laid back timekeeping as an African, so, uh, <laughs> so in Africa we have a different relationship with time, you know. I was getting too late, you know, many times I said, no, let me brush my teeth very fast. I broke the toothbrush. Next time I said, no, Bante, you have to be very careful. I kind of balanced my effort. I would just hold my toothbrush very lightly. And then I would brush, give myself a lot of time. I just enjoyed that practice. Mantraness of, uh, of uh, uh, tooth brushing, you know. And then uh, later on, I would enjoy all different kinds of meditations all the time. When washing my face, when eating. And it's just um, beautiful. You'll enjoy the practice if there's continuity of mindfulness. You try it. Just give, say, okay, today I'm just going not to miss anything. Make that result. Who is having that uh, parami? Is it Rebecca? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you assigned us these paramis. Yes, make a resolve. Hmm? I'm not going to budge, you know. I'm going to be mindful of every single thing. Eating, when you're standing, walking. Do it for one, two days, three days. Wow, you're going to see a huge difference in your practice. It doesn't matter whether you've been here for six weeks. It doesn't matter when you've been practicing meditation for a long time. Really, you can sharpen these faculties. Of mindfulness. That's how to sharpen it. So we talked about when and you know why we practice mindfulness. The question is how. Hmm? The question also the Buddha really gave <coughs> how to do it. A big dwells contemplating the body in the body. Ardent. That requires resolve. Effort. So we must have effort. Clearly comprehending and mindful, those are just mental states. Like clearly comprehending would equate to wisdom and understanding and mindfulness you know already. Removing covetousness and grief in the world. So he did it. How did it? Also the Buddha told you. He did it for the body, for the feelings, for mind states, and uh, the dhammas, mental objects or phenomena. So that's how to do it. But also he went to spell out uh, different ways of practicing mindfulness. With the body, starting with breathing, breathing in and breathing out. You'll get a lot of instruction. In my talk, I really am just setting the stage. I'm just breaking the ice. Yeah, you'll see a lot of this coming up <laughs> during your time here. Mindfulness of breathing in and out. There's bodily postures. And for me, it took me a while to figure out why are we doing standing meditation. Later on, I got to know actually how these postures can balance your energy. Like, for instance, when you have a lot of sleepiness, uh, you can stand up. You can walk. It came to restlessness in my experience, and I had a lot of restlessness. I went to my teacher and said, can I get rid of this restlessness? He just laughed at me. <laughs> uh, you ha- he had a tendency of smiling, my teacher, actually. I remember. But when I went to scriptures, this, I read that you can only overcome restlessness when you reach the fourth level of enlightenment. <laughs> no wonder my teacher was just smiling. <laughs> I wanted him to fix it, you know. And uh, one time I read a book, actually, that when you lie down, of course not in a meditation hall, but what I did is to go to my room and I just meditate when lying down. And it's just amazing how it balanced my energy and concentration. So Buddha gave every kind of meditation for purpose, not just for enjoyment (laughs) or just for the sake of practice, but for something, you know. Uh, Mindfulness of uh, 32 parts of the body. Um, Me, I do normally five that are visible, like the hair on the body and head, 
skin, teeth, and the nails. So again, this kind of uh, practice reduces attachment uh, to this uh, body. And so that we have equanimity towards the body. It's not about developing emotion, commotion, hating the body or, and other things, but really seeing the body with equanimity. He talks about mindfulness of, um, and, and comprehension in daily activities. That means whatever you do in your daily activities. Yeah, they, later on, they explain about um, purpose of your meditation, suitability, and delusion domain. So these things, they will be explained during this retreat. At least some of them they will be explained because all instruction overlap in one way or the other. Mindfulness of four elements, that's one of my best. Four elements, <laughs> I chose that one for some reason because when you do mindfulness of four elements, that means earth element, water element, fire, and the water element. Those are four elements. It brings you to the direct experience. There's no figuring out things here, right? <laughs> it's just your direct experience. Let's say if I'm holding this one, it's hardness. It's the direct experience. This is hot water. Oh, it's hot. It's direct experience. I don't ask, okay, is it hot or not hot? No, no. I don't need to ask. It's just direct like this. No scratching your head, you know, what's going on here, you know. So that's why this is my best meditation, because I go to the bathroom and start washing my face. It's cold water, coolness. I touch the faucet. Hardness. I whatever I do, I found out this meditation to be very powerful. Meditation of four elements. We are talking about different properties of elements, uh, like uh, for fire is hotness and coolness. For earth element is hardness and softness. I even extended it to the breath. When I am breathing in, breathing in, I feel the element, hmm? air movement. That's a property of uh, of air element. Then uh, you can feel also the softness of the breath. I always tell people that, okay, you know, you apply all Buddha's teaching. Hmm? There are 21 ways of practicing mindfulness. And uh, you can always integrate. Like, for instance, walking meditation. Really, the instructions are very simple. Walk and know that you are walking. Hmm? Lifting, blessing. You can do that. But you can integrate Buddha's teaching of four elements in each step you are making. As you are placing, find out, oh, it's very hard. Oh, this is hardness, softness, pressure, and all this. Of course, this is not an um, intellectual exercise, eh? And then you stay there, oh, you know, I don't feel the element. What's wrong with me? <laughs> There's nothing wrong with you. So don't really uh, just making it intellectual. It has to be your direct experience. When you, one challenge I had was more on movement. I, my teacher asked me, what do you feel when you move? You know, this kind of tradition, it's very strict. The teacher will ask you, how, when you move your leg like this, what, what was your experience? And just every time I meditated, I said, what do I feel when I'm moving my leg? <laughs> so, of course, later on I figured it out, you know, that it's movement. It's air element, moving. So there are then uh, six, nine stages of uh, corpse uh, decay, you know, corpse decay. Uh, we may not do it here, but uh, uh, it's part of the, <laughs> the, the package. <laughs> Mindfulness of feelings, that means bodily feelings, mental feelings, worldly feelings, and unworldly. 
Then mind states, the third foundation, that means mindfulness of wholesome and unwholesome states of minds. We talk about dealing with unwholesome thoughts. Then mindfulness of dhammas, mindfulness of the five hindrances, somebody will talk about it. And then uh, mindfulness of five aggregates, that's body, things, perception, uh, mental formation, consciousness. Then six sense bases, that means all the six senses, the eye and the invisible object. It's quite a long list, but you'll be patient. <laughs> As I told you, you have lists. Then we have seven factors of enlightenment, and uh, still somebody might talk about it, mindfulness. Investigation of dhammas, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, equanimity, and then the vulnerable truth. That's I told you where. That's the pillars of Buddha's teaching, the pillar. That's the mission. That's where we derive the mission statement. The first noble truth is to be understood. Second, to be abandoned. The third is to be realized. The fourth is to be developed. So that also is the last one uh, in this teaching. So we have trained one ways of mindfulness. You have a lot to work on. <laughs> you are not going to be without any, <laughs> any object of meditation. You can choose one. You don't have to do all at once. That's the good news. But, I mean, any place, even any vague attempt to do one, actually all of them come together. All of them come together. So the instructions, how they are going to unfold, we are just going to find out where you are and how the instruction unfolds. We offer a big menu. It's up to you to choose. It's up to you. But the key is that you really see the framework of the Buddha's teaching, how we intended. Of course, there's a refrain in these teachings. Talk about be mindful, we are still on how to practice mindfulness of the body internally, externally, or both internally, externally. Uh, then those are insights. We are talking about insights now. Hmm? Uh, there are nine of them. The Buddha gave nine insights that you should gain when you practice this way. So those are three already. Then we should be mindful or contemplate of the arising Nature, the nature of arising, and the nature of passing away, the nature of both rising and passing away, that speaks to impermanence and nature, impermanence nature of our experience. Then also, there's another insight, which is very, very profound. The sixth insight is you are mindful that there is a body. This is the body. This is the feeling, this mind state, this mental object, to, ex- to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continued mindfulness. So that's another thing that whenever you have pain, don't say, oh, I want pain to go away. Can we really use that pain to really gain more knowledge and insights? So we use it as a fertile soil to gain wisdom. If it goes away, that's, it has causes and conditions to go out. But you can integrate pain into the practice itself and see if you can gain wisdom. That's very interesting. <laughs> this, for instance, when you have anger, that's not what we do in our day life when you're, you're angry. Hmm? Day life, you know? Ah, you have anger for the extent necessary to gain deeper knowledge and mindfulness. Is that what you do in their life? <laughs> and whenever anger comes, yeah, wow, anger is the reason for the purpose of <laughs> bare knowledge. That's not what we do, I think, in their life. But in meditation here, we should see anything that rising, uh, from, that this is the feeling, this is the mind state, whether anger, forbear knowledge and uh, uh, continue to mindfulness because even mindfulness of anger, mindfulness of pain leads to more mindfulness. But if we're not mindful of these mental states, even difficult mental states, then we lose mindfulness. And a very good place to lose mindfulness is when we have pain and you're not mindful. 
then we lose mindfulness. There's no continuity of mindfulness. We collapse into the pain. So see how, we'll talk more about how to be mindful of pain and how you can open uh, organically to it, not erratic, <laughs> so that you, you kind of swamped with pain, so you open slowly. And the new, good news that is mindfulness can lead you to that edge where you can open softly and uh, uh, look at uh, what's going on with the mind, your mindfulness. Then there is another insight that you live independently. Independently. Live independently. Of course, this Buddha is talking about uh, mental defilements as companions. Is our companions like attachment, greed, hatred. These are our companions. We depend on them. <laughs> Here the Buddha is saying, no, live, contemplate and live independently from those things. So, Try to be independent from them. In other words, let go of them. And finally, a big insight that comes up in this discourse um, is non, non clinging on anything in this world. We are not talking about Uganda, Kenya, and all that. We are talking about the world. According to the Buddha, the world is this one. The five aggregates of clinging. We should not cling anything to this. We should not cling to anything in these five aggregates. I collapsed all those nine insights into an acronym that helps me a lot. You've heard about RAIN, but for me, I deconstructed it based on the insight. The Buddha gave the nine insights, and I came up with the main instead of RAIN. Main, mindfulness of the body, internally, externally. Uh, the A stands for attitudes, that the, which attitude I'm, I'm going to adapt, whether... Am I pushing away things, um, indulging in them, ignoring them? But of course, the instruction is that to the extent of, bare, uh, of gaining bare knowledge and uh, continuing to mindfulness. So this is the attitude I want to develop. Then uh, for the this in, uh, instruction on knowing the arising nature and all this, I call them insights. And of course, there's an overlap of continuity, what you call conditionality, and uh, impermanence nature of the experience. So I call those insight. My eye there stands for insight, plain insight. So now I need to gain insights during mindfulness practice. And then N stands for non-clinging, which is right in the discourse. It's uh, Buddha is telling us not to cling on anything in this world. That's how to practice it. But it is the good news, finally, assurances. Why bother? That's the last thing the Buddha is talking about. You are going to get enlightened. The Buddha gave a guarantee. Really, very few discourses have a guarantee, but this one have. Maximum seven years. And minimum seven days. How many days are we here? <laughs> if you are already here six months, you know where you are on a scale. And if you are new, you are new here, you have seven days, another seven days, another seven days, another seven days. You have six more times to try <laughs> to gain enlightenment. And the Buddha talked about, which is very interesting, the Buddha talks about gaining full enlightenment if you follow that way. If you follow his discourse, full enlightenment. And he gave a consolation prize, non-returner, which is the third. He didn't talk about the first and second. That means even a vague attempt, <laughs> you'll be right there, first and second. <laughs> Good luck. Thank you. <laughs> Let us sit for a moment or two. beings be well, happy and peaceful. May all beings attain enlightenment in this lifetime.
offer this for your reflection. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.